0: Just having won the title and walking out the street. sex bomb, Sex phone. <laughs> you're my sex phone. You can give it to when there's nothing going on.
1: Recorded live at Machine Sound London, this is the Bad Before the Bad Before podcast, and I'm your host, Chaz Langston. And welcome to episode 10. 10 rhymes with Glen, Sven Glorix, Error That's definitely not how you pronounce his name. Ten. By far, my worst intro ever. Now, I think I've been using the F word too much during the episodes. Um, That probably won't change during this episode, but I'm going to try and be a bit cleaner during the intros. So, flipping heck, have we got a blooming episode for you. So, let's not mess around and let's tell you about today's guest. So our guest today is by far the coolest person to ever pull off the drummer and lead singer combo, ever. Now you might say, yeah, but what about Philip Collins and his amazing Slasinger Jumper collection? No, you're wrong. This guy's cooler. I know we've all got a secret soft spot for Phil, but trust me, my statement still stands. I mean, how can Phil be cooler when due to his own admission he can't even dance? But he can walk cool, apparently. But anyway... In 2004, this band burst onto the scene with one of the most freshest and exciting sounds that I have ever heard in my life. It blew my mind and still to this day I go on about it. And five albums in, they're still sounding bigger and fresher and badder than ever. Oh, yo. During this episode, we hear about winning a talent competition with political rap, which is very on cue for how hip-hop I just was, how a gig in a wrestling gym was shut down by a mullet-sporting, crop-top-wearing wrestler, the great conundrum of whether Moose T is still alive or not, and how the new kids on the block changed everything. So anyway, it's time for me to shut my mouth and get on with episode 10 of the Fan Before, the Band Before podcast with our guest, the coolest dude on the planet, Mr. Sebastian Granger from Death from Above, nineteen
0: seventy-nine. Just don't call me late for dinner.
1: <laughs> Classic. I won't. I promise. All right. Well, Sebastian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's uh, let's take you right back to the very beginning. Where was you born?
0: I was born in a suburb of Toronto called Mississauga, Ontario. Um, it's just like a big. You guys don't quite have the same thing over there the kind of suburbs you have like villages and towns and stuff right you know. yeah. even my my uh family's from my dad's side is from england and my aunt still lives in potter's bar in the same place she's lived in no way basically since the 60s maybe i don't know how long she's been there but for
1: real so your your dad's english is from the uk
0: my dad's english yeah and my mother's yeah. french canadian
1: from potter's barn did you say as well
0: well my aunt lives in potter's bar my dad's from london um but his family's from the north what do you call it Newcastle and that kind of area There's actually in Newcastle there's a there's a Granger town
1: oh no way
0: yeah there's a Granger market we we stayed at a hotel there a few years ago and it was like there was a Granger beer on the menu it was great they didn't didn't get anything for free but it's (laughs) nice to know I'm from somewhere
1: what was your household like was it was it a musical household at all
0: um music played a big part uh as in like the stereo was a central part of the the house, so much so that I didn't I just thought that was normal. I thought everyone had a record player and had you know stacks and stacks of records and when I'd go to a neighbor's house and they didn't even have a there were no speakers anywhere you know like what do you do what do you how do you fill the air you know it was it just seemed I just thought it was totally normal um. So definitely records, having records around, there were always instruments, pianos and guitars and stuff. Um, my parents both had an interest in playing music, but never really took it on. It was, you know, they're um, my dad, probably if he were to do it all again, he would have played guitar in a rock band. But it's that generation, like post-war England was like, you know, I mean all the great music came from that generation basically (laughs) of his peers were like the who and the kinks and all that stuff. But, um, but he was, you know, he's working class guy and it's, there's no way that his, his family would have been down with him, you know, playing guitar in a band. Yeah. Go get a trade. He had to work. Yeah. So it's one of those things, like it's almost like a generational, like a dream that my folks had that, that didn't, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't do it for, you know, circumstantial reasons. And, uh, I feel like that, dream incepted me when i was a child
1: you say there was guitars and stuff uh, lying around the house do you know how they end up getting there then if, did they come
0: from your parents or yeah yeah yeah. like my dad had we just had an acoustic guitar lying around um and an electric guitar in bits and my dad actually bought this great amplifier a fender Tremolux, like a 19 late 1950s amplifier tweed amplifier with like a cigarette burn on the top from a garage sale for 25 bucks what? and it's like it's like it's like a $5,000 vintage amp like m- super coveted you know it looks like a basement or something but it's a yeah Trumlux it's like a a very uh coveted amplifier has he still That's, got it you know it's kind of like yeah yeah I've got it actually I don't have it it's in an old studio of mine so someone else has it but I'm I'm the guy won't return my phone calls for some reason <laughs> oh, I'm going have, <laughs> have to get Shit. some friends
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fucking hell. So, you, so it's still in the family then. That's fucking great. Well, I hope touch wood. I, I hope so, So yes, I'm still it's still there. Around. It's in good hands
0: for sure. It's in good hands.
1: And was it guitar that was the first instrument that you picked up then?
0: Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I think my brother started playing already. Maybe I don't really that that sort of those years are kind of blurry. I do remember I went to summer camp as a child and and hearing people play. Guitar at night, like acoustic guitar, had a big impact on me. And I remember when I went back to, to summer camp a few years later, that's kind of when I started playing guitar. I picked it up um, to learn songs, you know, learn some Beatles songs or something to sing. And I pretty much wrote a song right away. Really? I still remember it. <laughs> yeah. You do?
1: What was it called?
0: It was a... You know, keep in mind this is a 12 year old. <laughs> yeah, no um, judgment uh, here. Boy. This is a
1: safe place.
0: <laughs> so it was, it was a, the theme was based on uh, the story of the old woman who lived in a shoe.
1: Gotcha. Classic.
0: Um, but it was like basically, you know, like a single mother who was overburdened and had a lot of oh, kids wow. and had to work. You know, it was like this kind of heavy theme. I don't, I, I didn't, I don't think I knew any single mothers. <laughs> yeah, I just made up some fiction. Do you remember any lyrics? There was an old lady who lived in a shoe, had so many kids, you know what to do. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah, that's pretty much where it where it ends. I also uh, probably something that predates that is that I, I wrote a rap for a to win a uh, uh basically a talent show at school. Um, Amazing. in in French Canada, there's a there's this, a holiday called Carnaval, the carnival. It happens like June 24th every year. It's like the only French Canadian holiday essentially, and. Uh, in school, you'd have sort of like the prince or the and the king of the carnival, or the and it was kind of like a talent show. You would do something, you know. And I rapped. I remember that one too, but it's in French. I'm not going to do it for you. Oh, I don't want that. To be, I don't want it to me be like on <laughs> Uh I, I will say that it was themed. The, the themes were the Gulf War, which was happening at the time, 1991. So yeah, it was like wow.
1: Political rap, yeah, political rap, yeah, yeah,
0: talking about uh, <laughs> peace in the Middle East, basically.
1: Ah, oh, that's great. A, a lot of rappers could learn a lot from
0: you. I'm sure they could. It's not all bitches and hoes. <laughs> <laughs> Is that even a thing anymore? I don't know. Isn't it all just like I took a pill and now I'm tired? Isn't that? Yeah, it's hard to uh, it's
1: hard to even understand what they're saying without sounding like a miserable old man. Yeah,
0: so. I'm definitely on that train.
1: Going back to your rap performance. Would was that your first ever public performance of like performing in any way, shape, or form?
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, maybe on my own. There were probably a lot of kind of choir events, Christmas choir, and maybe like you know whatever children singing at something. You know, I think it was the first time I stood on stage with an outfit on and a microphone. Yeah, did you do an a cappella? No, I had uh, my brother was kind of fancying himself as a DJ at the time, and he had like 12-inch singles of popular songs and he had uh, Bust to Move by Young MC, Wow! which is actually Flea, I'm pretty sure it's Flea playing bass on that song. Oh, really? Maybe not. Maybe that was Grooves in the Heart, but he had Grooves in the Heart too. He had a lot of like of these 12-inch from whatever the year was, 1990, 1991. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Bust to Move by Young MC, yeah.
1: Wow, so your brother went up there with Dex?
0: No, it was I. I ripped it to a tape. I I cut a tape oh, and then gotcha. they just played it over the PA. Yeah, it, it was works. the audio was probably terrible. It was terrible. I didn't sound <laughs> no monitor guy. You know, I was like, turn my turn my mic up, turn my monitors down. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you think that gave you the buzz, the bug? Sorry, it probably did. You know, I can't imagine having. I guess I was just confident. Mm-hmm. Like getting in, up in front of five hundred, four or five hundred people and rapping. I think I, I see that in my daughter. She's so she's like very brave yeah Very brave person how did
1: it how did it, what was the reception like did you go down well
0: i won you won yeah i was the i was the prince i was the prince of the carnival i won
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: whoa fucking hell. Is that, i mean yeah, it only wears up from there isn't it yeah it
0: down for most people but you know you know the, the you mentioned the bug it's a mirror it's a miracle it's a it's a shock that i'm not um, more successful than i am the the the, the thing that really uh imprinted in my mind was uh my my father bought my sister tickets to new kids on the block um, for her birthday and that morning he went to the mall and they just opened a block of new tickets so he bought her tickets and brought them home and she could not deal with it she was so she freaked out so hard that she could not go like a debilitating anxiety like she could not believe it so my dad had to like rally you know a group of people to go use up these tickets. So I went with my brother and my best friend and my dad. It was supposed to be like my sister and her friends. And we went to see New Kids on the Block at the Skydome, which is like the big, you know, stadium in Toronto. The sound of that many people, um, you know, cheering, it was cheering and clapping and screaming. And the sound of 50,000 people just doing something together was so. It was so shocking i I still remember you know the spls and like and just like the feeling of being surrounded by not only noise coming from from the front but like totally surrounded by this indistinguishable wash you know i kind of i wanted to be around that thing which is just like basically collective sound absolutely i'll never forget that sound yeah Yeah. it could have been cooler i wish i'd said that you know it was like a it was a Led Zeppelin something, hey, or it was uh, Bad Brains at CBGB's. <laughs> there's nothing wrong <laughs> with this sound I was block. looking for now. It, it was the sound of screaming girls at a New Kids on the Block show.
1: <laughs> well, you know, hanging tough still stands up to this day, if you ask me. It's a shame. Not so tough
0: when you listen to it. Like, <laughs> I think I could take all these guys. <laughs> Donnie looks like a bit of a meth head. He always looks yeah, like yeah. a Yeah, yeah. Donny of a Donny, so Donny I would do, looks I'd be like worried about himself. him, but... Yeah. Uh, only because I think he'd scratch me with his long fingernails.
1: Yeah, and if you did somehow overcome Donna, you'd have to probably deal with Mark. He'd probably take revenge.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's a pretty <laughs> pious guy these days. He'd probably forgive <laughs> forgive me for massacring his brother.
1: One, two, three, four. Oh, that's wrong. oh sorry, sorry. So, instrument wise, it all started with guitar for you.
0: Yep, yeah, yeah, guitar was first. I think I. I do remember, well, we had a drum kit. We had a like a mu- Muppets, like a f- toy drum kit. That oh, the, really? The sticks were never around. Like there were never drumsticks around. It was just like some drums and I would hit them with pencils or whatever. Um, <laughs> but even at that age, as a like a ch- child, I knew that they sounded like shit. So I probably didn't play them <laughs> too often. But, uh, you know, banging things is pretty normal for a kid. Um, but I, I remember one Christmas, uh, a friend of mine got a n- Nintendo, the original console NES. And, and I was like, I wanted that and but I like music was kind of always you know part of the conversation at home so in order to convince my parents to get me a Nintendo which I never got by the way I told them (laughs) a story about how I saw um, a kid on TV who played video games and it made him really good at drums (laughs) and instead of getting me uh, video games they got me drums (laughs)
1: <laughs> that whole thing backfired
0: on you <laughs> I didn't deliver the right lie you know I didn't say it in the right order and I got the drums which is obviously better but um, yeah I wanted the Nintendo what would have happened you know if they got the message what would have happened man <laughs> what, what, what was the drum kit like that they got you um, there's a company called Westbury I don't know if right. they've got them over there. It's pretty basic, you know, probably 500 bucks. You can get all the drums and um all the bits, all the skins and all the cymbals and everything. Yeah, so my first kit my you know, my my dad went down. Actually the year before I got drums, the year after I told that lie that I saw a kid <laughs> that got good at drums from video games. Um they bought me a a little drum machine called the Synsonic Pro Model that was made by whatever toy company. So I had the Synsonic Pro Model. And and uh, so they they gave me that by giving me drumsticks at Christmas right. morning. And I was like, wow, drumsticks. And I thought, drums, that's cool. <laughs> and then I opened up this drum machine. It was fun. You know, I still have it. I, I, I yeah. still play with it sometimes. I had a band called Sinsonic Pro Model, actually, a little bit later. but Yeah? Yeah, and then the following year, They did the same routine where they gave me drumsticks, but then it was like, go downstairs. And then I went to the basement and there was a drum kit set up. Wow.
1: How old are you then?
0: I think 12 or 13. Wow. Yeah, maybe 13. I probably started guitar when I was 11 or 12. And then I think the following year,
1: yeah. And was this the first instrument that was yours? Like the guitar was just the the guitar that was laying around the house?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I suppose it was. Yeah, yeah, it it was mine. They were mine. It's incredible.
1: Yeah. So when you're learning guitar, you're thinking, I want to be a drummer or you just like want to do both?
0: Uh, I don't think there was a conscious thing. Uh, I don't really remember why the drums, you know, I think, I feel like my dad encouraged that in me. He, he, you know, he grew up around the Who and, um, yeah. and the Kinks and these types of bands. You know, the Beatles weren't a thing in my house. Like I discovered the Beatles on my own. Um, my dad was, you know, he grew up, in that time so it was like the Beatles were kind of bubblegum to him at the yeah. beginning yeah and uh what was the the Who's band they were called the High Numbers is that their name before they were the Who um I'm not so sure to be honest I with think you. that they were called the High Numbers but there's there's right. um it was like lore that my my father would always talk about oh I used to see watch the Who and they were called the High Numbers and this you know I used to watch them in this bar my dad actually has a story that that uh, Roger Daltrey stole his first girlfriend. Um, <laughs> they were just like in each other's orbits, you know. So much so that that happened. Like she, I, this, his first girlfriend, actually left him for, wow. for Roger Daltrey. He had children with him and everything. But uh, but um, you kind of just, you know, I would just take that those stories for granted, or just, you know, I didn't. There was nothing to prove them or validate them in any way. Right. And then through, you know, the miracle of YouTube and all that stuff, all this old footage came out and there's footage of my dad like mod dancing the the Who, like when they were like proto who and he went to see the who maybe like five or six years ago at whatever the big arena in in toronto and they were playing the old footage and my dad's sitting there as a seven-year-old guy and he sees himself as a 15-year-old like mod fucking cool skinny mod dancing yeah like on the jumbo train like probably a hundred two hundred feet high man i bet it was buzzing yeah. that's yeah, yeah, insane yeah. so that that energy whatever that is that's in him was like incepted to us you know mm-hmm. my mother had it too but it was it's different you know my dad had rock and roll in him you know yeah yeah and he
1: wanted to support support it in you as well yeah yeah what did you do lesson wise did you teach yourself
0: um my brother's four years older than me so he he kind of taught me it was probably like 20 minutes or maybe an hour of like he sat down he told me oh, you know never play the kick drum and the snare drum at the same time this is how you play a beat and i i now i play the kick drum and the snare drum at the same time all the time <laughs>
1: yeah yeah <laughs>
0: um but uh but he yeah he gave me the you know the bare rudiments you know basically just the whatever re- regular beat yeah yeah and then I, I just went from there really taught myself listening to songs I, never really a good study you know like i went like asperger on it you know um <laughs> and also drums are annoying unless you're playing them <laughs> this is the thing right like they're they i lived in a semi-detached house so we had neighbors
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know on the other side of the wall so playing in our house was you know was just whatever there's no way to escape the sound of someone hitting a snare drum in that scenario you know so if my siblings were home, they would be complaining. Uh, if it was too <laughs> late, I would get the neighbors banging on the wall. So there was like, there was really, wasn't until later in my life, I think, that I really applied myself. But I was like playing with friends and stuff, and we had gigs pretty much right away. Like we played at yeah. people's recitals and things. And I remember my parents discouraging me. Like we <laughs> like <laughs> really we had a show booked at like someone's recital or a talent show or something. And my friend came over. We we're we we're practicing, and my parents were like, "Are you sure you want to play this show? <laughs> you know, like it's not that good." But we we're like, "Of course! What are you talking about? Of course we're playing." So, yeah, of course yeah. We're gonna play the show. It's all
1: about playing. Like, at the beginning, it's not it's not about how good the show is, isn't it? It's about about getting up there and
0: doing it. Yeah, you need to be, you know, that kind of blind confidence is is very important, um, all the way through, all the way through rock and roll yeah you know, at the beginning it's important to be that naive that you that you imagine that someone else wants to hear what you're doing yeah um yeah and then when people start to want to hear what you're doing um you kind of have to believe that you're the best that they've ever heard you know
1: and like for the time being was that it for you with guitar were you just hooked on the drums
0: no I kept I kept going um with everything it was like everything was in you know in tandem um, because I don't really, I don't see myself as a drummer, um, specifically. It's so tied into songwriting and, and performing, you know, singing and playing drums at the same time. So there was rarely a time in my life when I, even in my first band, like high school band, there were songs when I'd stand up and sing, where I'd be singing backup, backup vocals or whatever, right. you know, writing songs for the band and always, yeah, there was recording on cassette tapes and there was always some creative part of it and it was the drumming was just sort of an added skill i still kind of see it that way
1: and without blowing too much smoke up your ass you've got a fucking insane voice
0: well thank you
1: how did you find that out because like if i had your voice i would literally be singing every question to this podcast i'd be singing my food orders
0: at cafes <laughs> I definitely do annoy people by doing that. <laughs> I definitely do sing especially when I'm alone i i we bought my wife and I bought this like big old Scottish stone house in in the middle of the, the sort of the boonies in ontario the in the country and uh when I'm here working on the place alone and this it's just such a big boom, I'm singing all the time. It's just like yeah. Miss and Dorma haveti <laughs> in the hallway all the time <laughs> um you know uh my voice has been a has been the a big journey for me i think you know um it's an instrument that frustrated me for a long time because i wanted to sound a certain way you know i loved the way certain people sang and i wished i prayed that i would sing like them um people like ian gillen from deep purple and jeff buckley and robert plant and these kind of like classic rock voice that high you know very controlled rock voice I love that so much I'm glad that I never did that you know was able to do that um especially not right out of the gate because it 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 drove me to keep trying to get better and there's there's a real downside uh to like if you're able to open your mouth and make that sound right away yeah. you know it's like I think of bands like I don't even want to mention the bands but there are bands that their whole thing is just sounding exactly like somebody else you know like right. that's the whole yeah template is just like what does this band what does this band sound like for this one record that's what my our band sounds like you know yeah yeah um but i was i in all of my uh musical pursuits whether it's playing guitar playing drums or singing i'm always pushing right against my limitations and trying to expand them You know, I'm always trying to, like, push my range or push my thing or push my ability or, you know, what I can play when I'm singing. And and I'm always, I think that's part of the appeal of our band, actually, is that we're, like, we're always on the precipice of, like, not being able to do it in a way, you know? (laughs) Do you think? I I mean, I don't know. Maybe not. I think maybe not. uh, I'm always doing that. I'm always pushing against, you know, like why there was so much screaming in the early days of my band live, at least was that I was trying to just sing notes that I couldn't sing. So I, just, <laughs> I didn't know how, so I was just like, <laughs> you know.
1: well, you've got, um, a ma- you got a massively high range though, right? You get super high.
0: Yeah, I guess I do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tenor, it's a tenor range. So, uh, it's, you know, it's just like a regular guy's voice. And then you get into that kind of classic rock and roll Sound. It's basically just five or six notes that are like basically if you can sing those and then one higher and and then sing lower. You know whatever. Like those are the ones. Yeah. I think it's pretty much sing any police song or <laughs> Zeppelin song or whatever.
1: Yeah, because I think the thing is with Death, Death from Above sonically, there's so much like incredible stuff going on at the same time with your voice the fact that there's only two of you making all these noise the bass sound it wasn't really until mm-hmm. you had done the stuff with data where i was like fucking mm-hmm. hell obviously i thought you had an amazing voice but it was like it it was there in like a, in a in like a right 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 what would you call it like a, a dance record or a pop record you know mm-hmm. when it was, mm-hmm. when, and it, when it it like really hold up as like fucking hell
0: yeah, I was definitely in a in a Prince and kind of Zappin' and Rogers like <laughs> '80s like '80s R&B vibe when I was I was DJing a lot at the time, so I was like listening yeah. to that kind of that kind of music.
1: Yeah, I think it just stood out more on like a different style of record, like the track you done with. Um, Does it offend you? Yeah, as well. Mm-hmm. That's so high.
0: <laughs> definitely. Yeah, that was a that was a shredder. Yeah, I. Yeah, they I wrote that. They like asked me to sing on something. They sent me a demo. I wrote part of it, like, you know, a verse and a chorus, sent it to them. They're like, awesome, let's do it. And they flew me out to New York. They were they're mixing at Electric Ladyland. They're mixing their record. And I went in to track while they were mixing. And basically I just locked myself in a room with a with a Laptop, and a preamp, and a microphone, and a compressor, and just like worked for a day until I nailed, you know. And I it was really like, it was a sound, yeah. you know. So I was like going for it. I couldn't do. After the end of the day, I was like, that's that's it. There's nothing. I can't do this anymore. Yeah, so I was really, I laying in, really laying into it.
1: Look at this. It's called a sampler. Look, look. You do this. Yeah, yeah. You hear that? Every chorus, bang. Bit of impact. And then we. Oh, hang on! No, sorry, I don't know how to turn this off yet. Is it, it's one enemy, something like that. All right. What do you reckon? Gives a bit of an edge. And so, let's go to your first ever band.
0: Technically, my first band was was a two piece band. Yeah. Okay. A guitar player and me on drums. We we're basically the White Stripes. We play like blues music. Right. And was you singing? No, no, I was just playing drums. It was just instrumental. <laughs> oh, instrumental okay. Music. It's funny, when the White Stripes happened, I was still in the mentality, I'm still in that mentality, like, don't play the blues, like, do not play the blues. Because <laughs> it was like the first thing that I learned. And, you know, I just thought it was like kind of corny. I thought it was corny. It probably Why? is. I don't think uh, the White Stripes playing the blues would be as well received today as it was <laughs> 20 years ago. But um, but at the time, I was like, oh, I guess it could be cool. I don't know. Um, But yeah, my first band was uh, just me and my, my friend Mark. He was playing guitars, playing drums, and we played like talent shows and whatever. And then basically it was just my friends. You know, oh, this guy plays piano. And then, you know, oh, so
1: it progressed from there with Mark.
0: It progressed, yeah, yeah, yeah. We played one or two things together and then there was, you know, whatever. We played, yeah, talent shows and things. What were you guys called when you were a duo? Uh, once we were a four-piece, we, we were called Remedy. But Remedy. R-M with an accent, accent grave on it right and then d so a three so like basically like master proto mastercraft like no vowels right um rmd yeah
1: rmd remedy yeah uh did did you have a name before when you were the two piece
0: uh i think i think probably that name came we probably called ourselves that pretty much right away oh okay and then we added more members and then we changed our name like probably half a dozen times
1: yeah, can you remember any of those names? We had
0: Sea of Sound, we had Safe and Sound, we had Saul Good, uh, we Saul Good, uh, yeah, Saul Good, like a Jewish, like some Jewish guy, <laughs> you know. But it's like all it's all good, baby. Sol all good, right,
1: it, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was
0: total cultural appropriation. We're like. <laughs> Yeah, and then we finally, I think we were Edible Cannibal.
1: Edible Cannibal.
0: Edible Cannibal,
1: yeah. Wow, where'd that come from?
0: I don't know. I feel, I mean, in my memory, I thought up all these things, but it was only someone else. (laughs) And in my mind, I'm like, and this, it shall be, we shall be (laughs) named this, you know, I do declare. No, our final name was Fourth Day Sun. Which was that's, that's a nice. ripoff of Sunny Sunny Day Real Estate. We were all big right. fans of Sunny Real Estate. We're like, oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, you know, kind of a vaguely like vaguely kind of Christian emo like <laughs> Christian emo, Cremo. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what, what our, we weren't. That we didn't sound like that. <laughs> but that's what Sunny Day Real Estate are. So
1: all oh, right, yeah. <laughs> and can you remember like? any song titles
0: uh we had a song called pent nine we had a song called two weeks we had a song called um, we had one called the watermelon song we had uh, somewhere i have a set list somewhere yeah dig it up. I should, I should text the bass text the bass player right now yeah. <laughs> he probably has them he probably has them pinned up in his wall
1: yeah and what was the songwriting situation was were you mainly the songwriter
0: no we uh basically we we started as a cover band and we only played songs that had really good guitar solos because our guitar player was really good. So he would right. learn some crazy guitar solo and then we just play that song. <laughs> like so I don't know if I liked the songs per se, right. but I just liked that we could play them, you know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he would he was kind of an interesting, kind of a manipulative, weird guy and uh very, you know, brilliant guy. But uh he would do things like like compartmentalize the band. Like he'd come up and he'd be like, Okay, you play this. All right, play that keep playing that and then you play, and then he'd like reveal the song we were playing but like one by one by teaching their people their <laughs> parts separately and then like we'd all play together right but if we didn't do it in the right order he'd get upset and leave and throw something oh, you know like wow. uh, like not in a fun paternalistic way like in a like no. a tyrannical fascistic way but uh yeah i forget what we're talking about but
1: we're talking about uh songwriting It sounds like. Yeah. So so he
0: would, he had a couple of songs that he wrote. um, And then I wrote a couple of songs for the band. Mm
1: -hmm. We ended
0: up winning. There were these um, in Toronto and the Burbs. There was this group called Supernova. They were uh, promoters. They were university students who started this basically a racket. So they would promote Battle of the Bands in Toronto. They would rent out one of the big venues in Toronto, like the Opera House, these kind of venues that, you know, I'd be happy to play now for a couple of nights, Mm -hmm. and uh, they would rent out these venues and they'd pick a date and then they would audition bands and bands would come down and audition. If they made the cut, then they would be like, all right, you made it. You're going to play the Battle of the Bands. And then it'd be your job to go out and sell a bunch of tickets, go back to your suburb. You know, they were all from the, the Toronto was part of like a mega city. And you'd go back to your high school and you'd sell, you know, 50 or 60 tickets or whatever, 20 or 30, whatever. And the racket was basically whoever sold the most tickets would win the would win the thing. So, but so these guys just thought about this business model, and they, it was very low cost for them. And they would stack the you know the bill would be like twenty bands, and everyone would go out and bring all their friends down. So it was like a real. They were for many years, I'm sure they're making lots of money. But we ended up winning a couple of those Battle of the Bands. Oh, and really? Were studio t- Studio Time and, and yeah. some yeah you know who had some some guy who had recorded some some band at some yeah, time you know yeah like, absolutely. Like, i recorded yeah i recorded this lowest of the low on their first demo <laughs> i recorded the first demo yeah. tape
1: you know that's so fucking true yeah. i recorded peter gabriel's friend yeah
0: uh, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you know the bass player in peter gabriel's band yeah i i recorded a bass player that kind of looks like him <laughs> <laughs>
1: the reason why i picked peter gabriel is because that's a genuine conversation someone's had with me I'm oh yeah sure. i've been working with peter go bullshit have you been working with peter gabriel <laughs> yeah, like yeah this guy i met this guy once and he was like yeah yeah i'm making this new album at the moment i'm working with this engineer who's worked with bowie and prince and i was like <laughs> on what On yeah. what did he work on with bowie or and prince Because there's no way that guy would be working with you. He
0: worked at the McDonald's (laughs) drive-thru. They popped in.
1: (laughs) That I can believe. But yeah. Was that your first time recording when you won these Battle of the Bands? Would that be your first time in a studio?
0: First time in a studio? I I, I already started recording um, on four track uh, or uh, just sort of like dubbing from tape to tape. Um, right, using v- using VHS recorders as audio recorders. Really? Like I, I'd already been doing that. Yeah, I had a, fr- a friend of mine actually, um, a really he was a guitar, the guitar one of the guitar players in my band. He's still like a very very high end television technician. Like he, wow, we would you know rig up these elaborate studios with different tape machines and you know using all kinds of equipment. And our high school actually had a lot of gear you know, a lot of gears right, so really? and no one really used. We were the only people who used it. So we would borrow a lot of tape machines and things and bring them home and no one else was interested. We were like, there was four or five of us. We would just have free, free reign of all that stuff. Fuck, that's amazing. Yeah, it was cool.
1: Yeah, and you just cool. threw yourself into like the engineering side of things as well then. And this is still as a teenager, I'm guessing, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, like 14, 15 years old, just like interested in, I still have very vivid memories of staying up all night, recording a thing, you know, with a friend. We would stay up all night. We'd record it. We'd overdub. We'd go back. We'd play the thing. And then we would stay up until like four or five in the morning, fall asleep, wake up, listen to it obsessively, just keep listening to it over and over and over again. I loved that. And that's still that feeling is what I'm still always trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Make just make Make a sound that's like you want to keep listening to over and over.
1: So it goes. What you? Shut the fuck up! Thank you. So, from Fourth Day Sum, what was the next band for you?
0: Well, that was my high school band, and then everyone went to school except for me. And I, I changed high schools, is what happened in the last two years of high school. And I went to an arts high school. And so I ended up, um, playing music a lot, you know, on a daily basis with, with people. And so I was involved in a lot of different projects, you know, the things that don't have names, just like playing with people. And then there was this, uh, I still had my high school band and we, we played in sort of the local DIY scene, you know, it's not, the the music wasn't punk rock or hardcore, but it was like, we were, had that, you know, you'd, you'd book your own shows and promote your own things and, you know, and then I um, I discovered artists like Nick Drake and and Jeff Buckley and these kind of singer songwritery people and um and that's something you could just do with the doors closed you know with no one else yeah. and so I became really um, fascinated with that approach and I I moved to Montreal when I was eighteen or nineteen under the guise of going to school but I never went and. Um, <laughs> But I brought my four track and my guitars and and just sat in a little apartment and made a bunch of recordings. And um, if I listened to them now, probably there'd be some cool stuff, but a lot of embarrassing things. <laughs> but uh I was kind of pursuing that that thing, um, like the singer-songwritery right. type of thing. And then I moved back to Toronto. I played in some bands in Montreal and and made music and lived in a house with music people and met music people and um and people who took it seriously, um, you know, those bridge years between high school and university, uh, like all my friends stopped. I'm like, sure they still played, but like you know, the band stopped playing together, like my high school band. So, and they started taking their lives seriously, and I was still right. doing this thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and then I moved back to Toronto, and then started bands with friends, you know, friends that were still playing and different people, and then. It wasn't that long, you know, within a year or so I met Jesse and he was the first person I'd met, I guess I was in my twenties at that point, point twenty twenty one. 21, who, he was the first person I met who spoke about music in the same way I did right. uh, or, or, or spoke about it in the way that I thought about it, which was that, that is, it's what you do. This is who you are. Um, and I, I didn't even speak about it to other people in that way. It was always like, oh yeah, I play or whatever. Right. Um, but he identified as a musician. Yeah and took it seriously, and like, and had really good taste, and, uh, that was kind of the beginning of me taking it seriously, and I was, um, I was going to art school at the time, and I remember I was playing in a band with Jesse, we had a band called Femme Fatale, which is basically a solo project he had, he made a record on his own, and then, or made some recordings on his own, and then found a bunch of guys to come, and girl, and there was a, uh, his girlfriend Robin was in the band, and, uh, we played in this seven piece kind of hardcore orchestra. Oh, wow. And uh and there were two drummers. It was me and this other guy. We played in that band. That was like my really my first experience with very aggressive music. Yeah, everything I played before that was either like alt rock or, you know, kind of whatever, like flirting a little bit with punk rock, but or or emo flirting a little bit with emo. But it wasn't like hardcore or it wasn't aggressive, really. Maybe mathy or, you know, kind of cerebral. Right. But like, this is the first one. I, like the first one I played with Jesse was like, play harder. Play harder. <laughs> I can't. It Play hard. It hurts. He's like, yes, it should hurt. You know? You shouldn't be able you should barely be able to get through a song. That should be the feeling. <laughs> like there should just be a complete inundation of lactic acid all over your body. It should hurt, you know? And it did. Yeah. Like playing that band hurt. I remember my dad came to see. We played in some community center or something. My dad came. And he's like he he said I looked like I was like having a stroke or, or <laughs> a stiff and like yeah really really at the at the at the exact peak of my ability. You know, didn't go further. I could not go further than I did.
1: It sounded very much uh, similar to the scene in, um, what's that fucking drumming movie? You know, that's not my tempo. What's that, oh, fucking, terrible what's that fucking movie? Whiplash.
0: Whiplash, yeah.
1: Whiplash. You know that Miles Teller, <laughs> he said, obviously, he learned to play the drums uh, kind of. for, for that role. But he, I read an interview and he's like, yeah, the director told me that 90% of the drumming is me bullshit that is <laughs> yeah. absolute bullshit there's that's like high le- high-end high-level fucking jazz like
0: it's also uh i can't I, I watched that movie and i had a lot of trouble watching it just the mm-hmm. the whole yeah it, it it bothered me to watch Yeah. The posture, just the posture alone is like, you're not, you're not, exactly. You cannot hit drums that way. (laughs) And like, just trying to, trying to play as fast as you can. Yeah. Exactly.
1: That's such a good impression as well. It it just looks like a child having a tantrum. Like, (laughs) I want more sweeties. (laughs) You know what I mean?
0: Not a fan. Not a fan.
1: So you and Jesse met quite early then.
0: Yeah. I guess so. I mean, I was 20, 21 years old.
1: Yeah. And from Femme Fatale, like what, what developed from there?
0: Um, we lived in a house together. He bought a house out in the East end of Toronto and I moved in, uh, with a friend of mine who played, played my high school band as well. Mm -hmm. He played in Femme Fatale. My friend, Kevin, who I mentioned, who was, he's a TV engineer. He, yeah, he played in Femme Fatale as well. We all lived in a house together and then, um, we started death Rumble pretty soon after that um really yeah we were once we moved into that house both jesse and i were i will say marginally employed and so we had a lot of time (laughs) on our hands and uh and so we started this project he actually recorded the first few songs himself um just bass and drums and his idea was that we would make this like very simple bass and drums music and then give that to a bassist and a drummer and then we him and i would play guitar and we'd be like dueling guitars. wow
1: so nothing like what ended up happening
0: nothing like what ended up happening um and it was it was going to be called the gift and we were going to get this uh there was this guy that looked uh i forget his name but he was like part we, we like jesse and i hung out and kind of met in the mod scene in toronto there's like a like a mod revival scene in Toronto. There were these two parties. Um, there was Blow Up and Mod Club. And one of them was on a Wednesday and a Friday. And the other one was on a Saturday. And that's where we'd go drink and listen to, you know, Creation and whatever, The Who and, and whatever the else they were playing. Britpop and Pulp and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. As well. It was like mod and, and Britpop. Yeah, yeah. And so I forget where I'm going with this.
1: We're talking about the early days of death from, before it become death from above you had to you were gonna play yeah, yeah yeah so we met
0: this we met this guy who looked he looked like uh the mirror image of of gary newman he just looked like gary he looked oh, like a cooler for version of gary newman so we're like oh we'll get oh his name's conan and we were like we'll get this guy conan he'll be the singer we'll call it the gift we knew what it was gonna be what it was gonna be called What it was gonna sound like and then we were in jesse's car and he played me the Music was just him playing drums and he overdubbed a bass on top of it. And it was like it was "Dead Womb" and "Too Much Love." There was maybe one other song. You know, they didn't have titles. But I was like, "That's it. There's n- you don't need anything else. That's the sound. Like that's there was nothing missing. Nothing missing. You didn't need guitar. Everything was in the bass. You know, the whole sound was there. It sounded like music to me. It didn't sound like it was. Yeah. Yeah. You know the 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 bed track. Yeah. Know, it sounded like the yeah. entire thing. And then so we started playing on those songs. And then at one point, we had a drummer friend come and play. And uh, him and Jesse were playing in the basement. And I sat upstairs and started writing words and kind of singing out in the air and thinking, oh, should I sing really high or should I sing really low? <laughs> <laughs> These are my concerns at the time. It's like I could sing high or high or I can sing low. And it's like, oh, oh. and then consent. I tried to sing low and I couldn't hear myself because it's, it was too loud. And then so I sang high. I was like, oh, I can kind of hear it. And then that drummer went home, and then Jesse and I just kept rehearsing. And then we're like, "Oh no, that's it! It worked." I was playing drums, singing those songs. You know, it's like, "Oh, that's it. We don't need anyone else."
1: So you were just meant to sing at the time. Yeah. Uh, Jesse heard you sing before, like properly. Did he have you in mind as a vocalist?
0: Well, we lived together, and our bedrooms were beside each other. And I'd be in my room; he'd be in his room making like techno music and dance music Mm -hmm. and i'd be in my room doing kind of singer songwritery stuff or whatever like angular acoustic electric drums you know vocal stuff so i would do what i was you know want to do at the time stay up all night working on something and then i'd show it to him the next day oh checked out this thing uh, this recording i made last night and he's like oh wow you've got a really cool voice wow you can really sing you know so and i was also doing like a open mics and stuff at the time. Not that anyone came to see right. me play, but I would go, there'd be an open mic and I'd go kind of discreetly and and go, you know, sing some of my songs and whatever. Yeah. So that's kind of the confluence of what we were doing. It's like he had this very aggressive approach to music and I had this kind of sweet approach to music. That's what, yeah. you know, the songs are like about love and friendship and, you know, it's, yeah, they're not like whatever know what yeah. aggressive music supposed to sound supposed to talk about but
1: so as the gift did mm-hmm. you guys start start gigging
0: as the no, gift? no 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 we, we we just had this concept and uh and then yeah i heard those demos those those bed tracks and then we just started jamming on that stuff and then that was what it was and then it was right away it was death room above it was like oh this is the name all of the amps that Jess uses still to this day were that's the amps we were playing with wow yeah Wow. like the songs those first songs um now i feel like i'm just repeating uh, playing back a, a cassette but mm-hmm. femme fatale we're, we're supposed to play our, our band jesse and i's band together we were supposed to play um in detroit on september 12 2001 and then september 11 happened and right. so the border shut down and we were so we were supposed to go we were going to get in a in a car or in, in a van and drive down to the states but we couldn't the borders were closed so we had all of our gear was in the living room and so Jesse just kind of plugged in the gear and then made that sound and then wow that's the sound you know it's it's evolved somewhat but not really it's kind of the same yeah, thing yeah 20 years later 20 plus years later so
1: that I mean, how did you feel when you first heard that bass sound? Because that is a fucking that's an iconic bass sound, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Um I mean I, I thought it sounded it was enough. That's what it sounded like. Yeah. You know, yeah. we were we were making stuff, you know. I wasn't like, wow, like stop the presses, we gotta, you know, <laughs> this is gonna be huge. I was just like, yeah, oh no, this yeah. is good. This is enough. Yeah, yeah. This is enough this is enough sound. We don't need any more sound.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's why you guys work. As a duo, because with your voice and his bass sound, there's there's no room for anything else. Do you know what I mean? Like no, like I you said, do, you're filling, you're filling. There's 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 no holes to fill. Do you know what I yeah. mean? It's mm-hmm. such a full sound.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: you know it'd be too much to take in do
0: you know what I mean yeah it'd be rude our band's already rude (laughs) it'd be be rude rude if we added anything else (laughs) yeah just rude
1: boys I'm so sorry I'm so late the buses were and there was like and I could see you bought in all the equipment already That is not cool who's busy those? I'm fucking gasping let's rock early gigs for Death From Above Mm -hmm. how were they for you?
0: Uh, the very first show we played was in New York we drove down, so we were supposed to play with Femme Tell and we couldn't afford to rent a vehicle for five people at the time. We were, right. we were a five-piece band. And we just couldn't afford to like go. We couldn't afford it. And so um just renting a van seemed like and like who has 500 bucks? Like it was yeah. like insane. Yeah. yeah. And so we had some shows booked with this other band called Red Light Sting, who are from Vancouver, and they had a record label called Ake Records um the two zoe and uh and andy the two two of the members from that band so we went and met them at these shows they drove across the country and then mm-hmm. and then they they arrived in uh in cleveland was supposed to be the first show and so we drove down as death from above just the two piece we had three or four songs plus like some half covers like we'd play like half of Dazed and confused, and we played like oh, half right. of Mother by Danzig and like <laughs> half of 138 by The Misfits, um and half of uh Have Level Traveled by The Sonics, and then like four or five of our own songs. We had it was like a 15 minute set. Yeah. So we drove down to Cleveland, and we were supposed to play in a in a in a wrestling gym, and we were in the parking lot. We met the the other band, Red Light Sting, and we hung out with them. We got along really great having a really good time and then kids started showing up the parking lot you know for the show like arriving in their cars and kind of milling about and then uh and then this pickup truck pulls up and uh a guy that looks like a professional wrestler like wwf ww like a like a guy like like a huge muscle-bound dude with like a crop top shirt and a mohawk and a blonde mohawk and he walks out of his truck and his kids are on the truck he's like no show and he walks up and he's like puts a chain on the door and like makes sure the door is locked and then drives away. So we're like, okay, we're not, oh. I guess we're not playing a show. And so instead of playing a show, the first Death and Rub show, we drove to someone's house and they offered us a vegan, uh, vegan potluck, which sounded like, let's just say a uh it paled in comparison to the to what we were supposed to do, which is play the first Death from Love show. Um, <laughs> and so we hung out for a bit, and then we got in Jesse's car and we drove to New York City, stayed with a friend of ours, and then we played our first show that night on Long Island. And it was just this like tiny living room show. And we had dressed all in white polyester. We bought some outfits from an army surplus store. And it was like a million degrees in that little living room, on a <laughs> rooftop. And we played, and I remember it was not unlike the first time I kind of got in a fight on the street, like a stranger. When we were rehearsing, I kind of had a grasp on what it was. And then the second we were playing in front of people and like just the stakes were high, something, it's not the stakes were high, fucking 12 people there, but it was just like, it was like the world was pushing down on me. Right. You know, it was like a physical, it wasn't like, Uh, an emotional pressure or anything it was like it was hard it was hard to play and sing you know Uh, yeah and in retrospect it's because it was a million degrees and you know there are all these factors physical factors but it was the realization that it's a physical endeavor hit me really hard you know and it was like okay if i'm going to take this on i have to take it really seriously because it's it's hard, it's difficult, and it's still that way today. Yeah. It's still difficult, you know, it's never easy.
1: Well, being the lead singer and the yeah. drummer, mm-hmm. as far as lung capacity goes, you've got the two hardest jobs mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, that must be a lot to take in for you.
0: Uh, it's been a long road to to do it in a way... I know that we, we had, you know, uh, a certain amount of success early on or a, a notoriety or whatever you want to call it. You know, we had a moment at the beginning. Part of the reason why we didn't didn't last too long off the top was because I didn't feel like I was ready, you know, ready oh, to really? do that. Even though I took it on. It was like it was hard. Never yeah. got easier. And it, it not I didn't enjoy it because I was um I was too burdened by it. You know, I wasn't free. So the goal since then is how do I do this and be feel free you know and that's the ultimate goal and when i'm able to feel that way that is what a good show is for me or a good performance so that's the ultimate feeling yeah. is the transcendence and being free um and so anything i do in my practice or uh warm-ups or exercising or whatever it's all just so that i can be free to do that thing which is yeah. you know what what when i first endeavored to do it what felt like an insurmountable pressure You know like the entire pressure of the world pushing against me trying to push back so that it's at least i'm moving forward a little bit you know i'm pushing against it enough that it's moving even just barely that's where i'm at now so i'm just barely pushing it away you know
1: that's kind of that kind of leads me into a good place to ask you do you remember a pivotal
0: point where you thought we're doing it uh I mean, I had that feeling when we were writing at the beginning. I was like, oh, oh really? people are going like, to like this. You know, like it, yeah. was, it was a bit of definition and I could hear the melodies Jesse was playing. And I could hear what I was singing and I was like, oh, people are going to like this. Yeah. And we made some recordings and Jesse's father was, uh, was he passed away, but he was a, quite an accomplished musician himself. And, uh, and he, when he first heard our recordings, he said, oh, Jesse, you're going to have a problem people are going to like this. They're going to want to hear it. You're going to have to go out and play it. That's going to be a big problem for you. And that was the feeling that we had pretty much right away with like, because we were coming from something that was, that was very challenging. And we were like, oh, we, we're making something that sounded like, you know, it sounded like pop music to me. You know, it sounded like, like, oh this could be a foo fighter song or something You know, it was like it was like very even though it's not you know yeah. even though it's not yeah. that yeah and it wasn't that yeah. that was the that's how deluded we were right we we're like oh we could be on the radio wow there's no delusion in that but i mean it it was um it was so out of the ordinary from where we were coming from you know
1: yeah
0: um it just it it the, the people in our scene weren't on the rate no one was on the radio you know it was yeah. it was DIY hardcore punk rock, you know, um, that sounds pretentious when I say it like that. No, not so. But,
1: not but at you all. know what I'm
0: saying. Like it was it's so. I know exactly um, what you're saying. Like, like it. Even for myself, it never occurred to me to to uh, duplicate a recording. Like I never thought about putting out a record. I was thought I was making records, making recordings to show my friends on the bus. You know, like when I was yeah. riding to school, I'd be like, "Oh, check out what I did last night. Here's what I did on the weekend." You know, yeah. that's that, I got satisfaction from that. I didn't need. I didn't need to 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 re- reproduce things, you know, or yeah. to, to make copies. And so this was the first project I was involved in where I had that feeling like, oh, we could make, yeah. we could, this could be re- replicable, you know, people will want copies of this recording. Um, and then when we started playing, we had the classic uh, rock and roll story of, you know, playing in a club and no one's there. And then going back two months later, and then there's more people there and then going back and then there's you know there's oh there's a 100 people here you know and then the first time we paid rent with our band you know we went out we played in yeah. london ontario with the guarantee and the t-shirt sales we made a thousand bucks and we Fuck. came home we, we he jesse took 500 bucks and my rent was was 400 bucks and i paid rent and had money for food and i was like that's it we made it amazing but that's that that is the signal you know it's that people are yeah. coming back you know people want to hear this you know yeah that's like the it's the cold reality of of this endeavor you know like a lot of people want to do it and there's a lot of things that i've wanted to do in music that just people didn't want to hear it or didn't want to come back right you know yeah. like that thing didn't happen mm-hmm. probably there's things i could do today where i would you know i'd do something and like you know it wouldn't hit like that but yeah, it, it worked. You know, people kept coming back. Yeah. When people ask me for the advice, like, how do you make it? It's like there's no. If people don't want to hear it, they don't want to yeah. hear it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know what that means these days in this landscape with you know streaming and whatever and virality or whatever. I don't know what that means necessarily. How you replicate that thing, but it's how it worked for us.
1: There's no real recipes there. It's never going to be. No. No. And the drums are like. <laughs> And the bass comes in. Yeah? Everyone got that? All right, let's do it. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Wait, when do we all come in? Let's talk about gigs. Mm-hmm. And this could be with any outfit that you've ever been in at all. Can you remember your worst gig and your best
0: gig? Worst gig, one of the early Death From Above shows. Well, because we were, we were a two-piece band, we were able to travel easy. You know, like it wasn't hard jesse's mother had a bunch of airline points so we were able to like get on a plane pretty much right away nice you know we played a few shows in the states and then our before we even played toronto our hometown we played in vancouver and we flew to vancouver so we'd been over to vancouver we came back and then we played some shows and then we were there was this label AR in la her name is laurel stearns and she worked i think she worked at Capitol records and through the kind of scene that we were adjacent to which like the west coast scene with like red light sting and blood brothers and pretty girls make graves and those kind of bands we uh we were invited to play a, a showcase in los angeles so we flew to vancouver and we got in our our friend's band van and we drove all the way to los angeles we didn't play any shows on the way to. no i think we pl- maybe played a couple but we basically drove in like a really cramped van and we got to la and uh we played a show by ourselves one night and then we played at the glass house in pomona and it was an awesome show and then we went to this woman's house laurel stern she was this a and r she's like come to my house we'll have a party and we went there and it was like you know, the Blood Brothers, Pretty Girls Make Graves, and Red Light Sting, and all these other people. And like all these LA, cool LA people were in this woman's apartment just getting wasted. And, uh, and then there was a bottle of liquor on the top of her fridge and it had seahorses in it. And like someone's like, yo, there's like this crazy seahorse liquor. I was like, give me that. Yeah, I drank the seahorse liquor. <laughs> and, uh, and the next day, I, w- I don't think I've ever been that hungover in my life. And we right. were playing at the troubadour in la big like a big venue i had a tim buckley live at the troubadour record that i was like lo- loved listening to and i was like oh this is like an iconic place you know yeah and uh i borrowed a drum kit from this other band and it was a drum kit that was just sitting in the back of a bar for like years and this guy just was given this drum kit that was waterlogged it was warped it was out of round oh, it was just nice. like the stands would you know like the rusty stands like they wouldn't grip things were always falling over the place yeah and i'm sitting on stage sitting on stage at the troubadour like this iconic venue there's a packed house it's probably our fifth or sixth show maybe 10th show i don't know and i've and i was up all night just making stupid voices and impersonating arnold schwarzenegger and just like (laughs) yelling and screaming and swearing smoking cigarettes and not even like a thought to warm up my voice or to like you know and just get on stage completely annihilated and start and it was you know i hit the drums and they fell over and oh no you know and i'm trying to sing i can't even make any of the sounds like you know you're trying to sing like ah and you're not singing. <laughs> uh, uh, you know this kind of sound and it was just like the most frustrating physical feeling and it's not like this woman had intended to sign us to Capitol Records or anything, but there was this kind of loose promise right, of yeah. something, you know, this flirtation yeah, yeah. with like the yeah, big time. Absolutely. And it was like, I felt like I absolutely ruined it. You know, oh, like it was fuck. what a waste, you know, what a waste. And then we drove back up the West coast and that was it. Jesse and I were like, that's, that's it. We're not playing that. We're done. We, we figured we were, that was it. We're not going to play anymore. Like, that was going to be... Like, it's a good run. You know, we played, like, whatever, 10 shows. That's a pretty good good yeah. project, you know? Was he in a similar state? Yeah, he felt similar, I think. Yeah, you know, yeah He probably yeah. wasn't as... He was probably, like, absorbing my my frustration <laughs> more, you know? And yeah, I'm sure it didn't sound very good to be playing on stage with me. <laughs> um, but we were going to call it quits. And that whole ride home, we were like, you know, I guess that was fine enough. You know, it was good. We'll do something else. And then... <laughs> this also sounds pretentious and corny. But then we wrote Romantic Rights. Right. And then it was like, oh shit. Okay. Oh, this is something else. We can do this kind of like disco e hardcore punk rock thing. You know, we kind of found our sound, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and approached the music differently. Like I was like, oh, I don't have to scream. I can kind of sing in this kind of like talky low thing, you know. Um, and and that unlocked up, uh, you know, unlocked the entire band for us. So wow. the worst gig—it was the nucleus for everything, you know. So maybe it was also maybe it was also our best gig. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It all comes full circle. Yeah. So you had you had a lot of interest then, like way really early.
0: Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were we were we opened ourselves up to it. You know, it wasn't like there's that myth that you know I don't know. I'm sure people do to get discovered or whatever. But like even when that uh, I forget what. I think it was called Silver, this like uh, Nirvana DVD box set thing came out mm-hmm. in, in the early knots. And, uh, and there's all this early footage of Nirvana playing gigs and yeah. touring and whatever. And you get the sound. It's like, oh shit, this dude was trying to make it. Like Kurt Cobain, yeah. for all the reluctant punk rock bullshit, like, mm-hmm. you know, um, for all of the, facade he was a guy trying to make it and obviously he was like he yeah. wrote this incredible music and he was an incredible performer and yeah. and it's like it's obvious that he wanted it you know yeah um yeah. and so it, it's this weird duality that you have to like i guess it's there's an element it's it's funny like contextualizing things under the, the term selling out because selling out is like it's just the normal it's absolutely the norm now like there's no term yeah. you don't selling out is whatever yeah. it's like yeah. everyone. Yeah, you know you find some cool band on the internet that's a punk rock band and they're like they're making a fucking video with adidas or you know whatever it's like it's all yeah everyone is branded and sponsored and i like Mm -hmm. i feel like such an old fuck for like giving a shit
1: no i know what you mean i know what you mean no
0: it's just it doesn't enter the it doesn't enter the, the it's not in the zeitgeist anymore you know
1: yeah 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 i guess also there's um uh, I mean, I'm not defending the situation, but there's also like there's less ways to make money now because obviously record sales is like pretty much non-existent in a way, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I guess it's kind of like new newer bands have to sort of adapt to try yeah, and yeah. make a living.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't. I mean, I still judge people, but I don't really. Judge <laughs> we all do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when did you realize that you were a musician?
0: I mean, I think I touched on it. Like when I when I met Jesse. Um saying it out loud, that was the first time I said it out loud. Yeah. You know. Um, in a serious in a serious way that wasn't like a fantasy that I wasn't where I wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna be a musician. You yeah. know, whatever. It's like oh, I'm a musician. So that meeting him gave me that seriousness. But you know, in retrospect, it's obvious it was it was happening the whole time, you know, it was happening the whole time. Yeah. I started up like I had a, a like a band in before you know in grades five or six i was like oh i'm gonna start a rap band we're gonna record at the 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 recording studio at the back of the hmv at the mall and you know i was like writing up contracts for my friends to start this <laughs> really and also you know going trying to win contests by rapping yeah. and singing you know it's like obviously it's obvious i that's where i was headed you know yeah 100
1: percent. it's worked out all right for you it's
0: okay yeah <laughs> oh
1: All right, man. Before we uh before we wrap it up, I've got like four light-hearted, sort of almost quick fire esque questions that I like mm-hmm. to ask everyone. Mm-hmm. You ready? Yep. And we touched on wrestling a little bit earlier with the yep. old uh, with the old guy that shut your gig off. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a wrestler or a, a boxer or a fighter of any sorts, mm-hmm. what would your in music be? Oh my god!
0: Can I pick two?
1: Yes, you may.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, the <laughs> first one is Sex Bomb by Tom Jones.
1: Great. Featuring Moose Tea. We can't we can't leave out
0: Moose Tea. Is Moose Tea on that track? <laughs> I think so. R.I.P., you know? <laughs> R.I.P. I don't think he made it. No? Oh, R.I.P., Moose Tea. I don't know. I don't even know who you're talking about. Me neither. <laughs> uh, and the second one, I, what's the song? I think it's Iron Tusk by Mastodon. Oh, nice. Yeah, that one... I yeah, think it's Iron Tusk. Yeah,
1: let's see. I tell you what, one could be a walk in, one could be a walk out.
0: <laughs> I think walking onto Iron Tusk is the good, is the right move because it's intimidating. Yep. And walking out, like just having won the title and walking out the <laughs> sex bomb, sex bomb, <laughs> you're my sex bomb. You can give it to him when there's nothing going on. That'd be great. <laughs> I Such just, a laugh.
1: Can I just say that was you were looking me directly in the eye. And I yeah. had a little moment there where I was like, Sebastian from Death From Above 1979 <laughs> is looking me in the eye and singing Sex Bomb.
0: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I went to see uh, I went to see Manny Pacquiao box in, in Vegas oh, did you? In, in 2012 during the Bradley 2 fight. And, uh, and he, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he came out to, who's that singer? Oh, what's her name? Oh, fucking... I kissed a girl and I liked it. What's that song? Oh, Katy Perry. Katy Perry. Katy Perry.
1: Manny Pacquiao came out to Katy Perry. Perry, I kissed a girl. No,
0: no, it wasn't that song. It wasn't that song. It was like Eye of the Tiger or something. I've got the Eye of the Tiger. I know the song you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. That's her, right? I can't.
1: Yeah, it is uh, her. I don't know what the song's called, but I know the song. It does say
0: that. The Eye of the Tiger. It's like, bro, come on.
1: Okay, question two. What is the greatest TV theme tune, intro or outro, ever written?
0: Uh, it it's must be Cheers. The theme song is you Cheers. You are
1: the first person that said Cheers. And I thought everyone would go Cheers. Yeah.
0: It must be Cheers.
1: Cheers is a beautiful song. It's incredible. Yeah. Okay. What song would you like played at your funeral? Oh, easy.
0: Um... Uh Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence by Ryuichi Sakamoto. <laughs> I don't think I know that song. Just look it up. It's incredible. I will. And I, it, it, the stipulation is that it has to be performed uh, on piano with a string quartet. That'll be wow. in my will. It'll be in my will.
1: Oh, wow. Yep. Okay. And last but not least, what advice would you give a young Sebastian Granger?
0: Uh, I would somehow convince him that he was, that he was good enough at the time convince them that it's 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 fine you're doing you're doing great yeah sounds sounds i'm a dad now so i can i can feel that way towards the younger version of myself but i uh you know i wouldn't change anything so i'm not gonna i wouldn't do it in order to change anything change a trajectory or you know but i and i'm not gonna call i'm not gonna say that i had imposter syndrome or or pretend like I was felt bad or I was a victim or anything of anything mm-hmm. but um I didn't feel like I was ready for any of it when it was coming at me the first time so I couldn't appreciate what other people saw in it because I was too I was like it's not ready it's not there yet it's not quite right. there yet I didn't think it was ready yet but it was right obviously it was like we made a cult record that people still love you know so I can't judge that now obviously I'm not gonna judge it so I would and there's no way I would have absorbed that uh, that concept at the time. I would have still been wrapped up in my own bullshit. But, you know, I would have tried, I would have, it would be nice if I had, had enjoyed it a little bit more, you know.
1: Well, what I was going to follow up with was, do you think a, a younger you would listen? Uh, I doubt it.
0: No, you know what, <laughs> actually, that's not true. What would I, uh, I think I would, I think, well, it depends. I think i would i would hear it i would listen to i i was i was not a very good student in school i don't have a good relationship with authority but i do um i do appreciate the mentor prodigy relationship i like that relationship and i've had successful ones with singing teachers and producers and people you know people slightly older or with more expertise um And even when we got, when, you know, when Death from Above started playing in the Toronto scene and kind of the rock scene, when we, whenever, when we moved out of the, I'll still call it punk rock, but you know, there were no lights, there were no, there were no stage (laughs) lights, there were no smoke machines, okay, when when we started playing gigs with smoke machines. um, (laughs) I liked the mentorship of like the other rock bands. I liked having people to impress people that were slightly older to impress and to feed off of and to you know to learn from I like that so I probably would have I probably would have received it
1: that's great that's a great note to end on mate uh, uh from the bottom of my heart thank you so much for no problem uh, yep. for agreeing to do this it's been such a pleasure having you on ma'am I'm uh I'm sorry if there was any other uh, fanboy moments uh my know No. I
0: don't I, I get I get uh I have a three-year-old daughter (laughs) and so I'm told to be quiet (laughs) Uh, and I'm I'm told uh, I'm told that I don't like you I like mama on a daily basis (laughs) and I laugh I laugh at it because it's obviously it's not true but um but that's like the feedback I get in my regular life so for someone to say that I'm that I'm pretty cool it feels good so don't worry about it
1: and uh yeah man um a fucking incredible bands not just not just death from above solo work thank you the stuff you've done with data everything's like and so i really appreciate you coming on and speaking to me
0: cool man thank so, you like, thanks yeah. for having me
1: you're welcome man and uh, all right if you're ever in london i'll buy you a, i'll buy you a beer not a seahorse based alcoholic beverage yeah
0: well, i'll have what you're having <laughs> all right man thank you thanks so much all right Thank you so much. Okay,
1: take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And there you go. Episode 10. Sebastian Granger, Death from Above 1979. Hang on. Wait. Before we go any further, let's clear something up. Moose T is alive and well. In fact, he's still making music. In fact, only last year, he done a remix of the track Free At Last, ...by Wankelmutt and Anne Lynn. Um. Wankelmutt? I can't be reading that right. Actually, it looks like it's pronounced Anne Lien. So out of the two names, it was her name I got wrong. So apologies to Anne and uh, all us up to Wankelmutt. Anyway, apologies to any Moose Tea fans that are listening. If you had a panic attack during that episode... I'm sure there is zero Moose T fans listening to this podcast, but just in case, on behalf of Sebastian and myself, sorry about that. Now, I'm sure you're all aware that yesterday, Death From Above 1979 announced on their social media pages that they are going to be playing in London, a one-off intimate show at the Garage. Now, tickets go on sale this Friday. That's if you're listening to this podcast the day it comes out, which is today, Thursday... The tickets go on sale tomorrow. If you're listening to this after that, you're fucked. Because they're going to sell out pretty Oh, I swore, didn't I? Anyway, they are going to sell out super quick. But they go on sale at 10am on Friday the 26th of May. So get in there quick. I know I will. And if you're going, I will fucking... S- oh, I've done it again. I will see you down the front. I really do swear a lot. I want to say a massive thank you to Sebastian for being such an awesome guest and giving me his time, he was such a cool dude man we chatted for ages I can't thank him enough he was a fantastic guest and I cannot wait to see those guys at the garage I'll tell you that for nothing I want to say a big thank you to you yes you the people listening thank you so much I appreciate every single one of you if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us at the Band before, the Band before TheBanBeforeTheBanBefore on both Instagram and Facebook. I've set up a Twitter and I've also set up a YouTube account, but I've done absolutely nothing on either of those. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure how much I could be asked just yet. But um, I would ask you to like and subscribe, but why should you bother? If I can't be bothered, why should you be bothered? But anyway, thank you all again for tuning in to the Band Before, the Band Before podcast. I love you all so much. Have a wonderful week, slash weekend, slash whatever. It's bank holiday, isn't it? Anyway, love you all. Bye!